Bibles and turn to John chapter 20, please. The Gospel of John in chapter 20. If you have not been with us, uh, we working, we're working our way through the Gospel of John. We're coming toward the ends of, end of it. And our text is in John chapter 20. We're going to take the first 18 verses as our text here this morning. And as it brings us closer to the end of the Gospel of John... Uh, we're going to be dealing this morning with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I appreciate uh, the songs this morning and the focus of them. And I was watching some of you sing about He lives and we serve a risen Savior and He arose up from the grave. And some of it and a lot of it was He arose up from the grave. He arose. Hallelujah. Christ arose. And I know we can do this. We can sing things by rote so many times. But when you grab hold of the truth of what we're singing about, it ought to make the heart rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, O Christian. Lift up your voice and sing. Uh, that's, that's this glorious truth we're going to consider today ought to bring joy to the heart. Before we get to our passage, though, I want you to hold your place here in John chapter 20. And I want, to, I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. All right. So put your ribbon there or hold your place there, however you want to do it. But turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And again, our text this morning is going to deal with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But before we read that, I want to begin by borrowing from the Apostle Paul a portion of his letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth that really lays the importance of the resurrection before us. And let me direct your attention to verse 1. The Bible says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. And after that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time." And I read this passage here because I want you to notice by the words of the Apostle Paul here that the resurrection of Jesus Christ occupies the greatest footprint in this portion of Scripture. Paul says, I'm going to declare unto you the gospel. That's what he starts out by saying. And he makes a reference to the death of Christ. Then he makes a reference to the burial of Christ. But the main emphasis is on the evidence of the resurrection of Christ. And the reason for that is that the resurrection of Christ is not simply a component of the gospel. It's not merely just a feature of the gospel. The resurrection is the main event of the gospel. In fact, the greatest event in the life of Jesus Christ is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the culminating of divine redemption. It's the cornerstone of the gospel. The resurrection is the guarantee of eternal life for you and me who believe. 
That's why it's important. In fact, without the resurrection, the cross would mean nothing. The teaching of Jesus would mean nothing. The works of Jesus would mean nothing because without the resurrection, there would be no salvation. The resurrection is not an epilogue, friend. It is the climax of the life of of Jesus Christ and His work. And if we were to strip Christianity of the doctrine of the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, then our faith would be no more than just another religious system that condemns people to hell, like the religion of Islam or any other. If Jesus did not arise from the dead and he's not alive today, friend, then everything he did was in vain. His death was a waste of a life And all his teachings are simply the ravings of a madman. If Jesus is not alive today, then you do not have salvation, and there is no hope for this world, and we're all headed to eternity without God. Now, having said that, (laughs) he is alive. He does live. And I want to praise the Lord this morning for John chapter 20. So turn back there, because... In the verses that we're going to read here, we're given a portrait of Jesus Christ, who is our resurrected Redeemer. And that's the title of the message this morning, Jesus, the resurrected Redeemer. And we're going to see in these verses that Jesus is very much alive and well this morning. And I want to take a few minutes to look in these verses and really try to help us this morning get a fresh glimpse of the resurrection of Christ and what that actually means for every one of us today. Praise the Lord, He lives. Thank God that He lives because we serve a risen Savior. And we have hope in this life and then beyond this life and on into eternity because of the resurrection of Christ. Amen? So let's look at these verses together and we'll make applications for us along the way. Let's start in verse 1. Of John chapter 20. We'll read down through verse 18. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, under the sepulchre, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, that's John, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and that other disciple, and came to the sepulchre. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter, and came first to the sepulchre. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulchre, and seeth the linen clothes lie. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself, Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again unto their own home. But Mary stood without at the sepulcher, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher, and seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. 
And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where they ha- they ha- thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. Let's pray and then we'll begin. Lord, I pray that you'd help us with your word this morning, and I pray that this truth would resonate in our hearts, and Lord, that you'd use the word of God, Lord, to accomplish your purpose that you've sent it forth today. For the souls of men here who are not saved, would you draw them to the cross, draw them to the Lord Jesus Christ. For the hearts of saints of God, let us rejoice in you again, our Savior, and that we can have a relationship with God the Father personally because of Jesus Christ, his shed blood, his resurrection. And Lord, we pray these things would be Truths that, that, that challenge and also encourage and lift the soul today. In Jesus' name, amen. First, the first thing that I want to draw your attention to is Mary, Peter, and John at the tomb. In verses 1 through 11, it gives us the account of Mary, Peter, and John as, and what they experienced as they came to the tomb that morning. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. You find the discovery here. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulchre, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre. Then she runneth, and cometh to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have laid him. Here is the discovery. The Bible tells us that Mary came to the tomb a good while before daylight. It was early on the first day of the week, Sunday morning. Now, the Gospel of Mark also tells us that there were other women with her who came to the tomb. Just keep your place here and turn back to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16, and look at verse 1. Mark 16 and verse 1. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, had brought, had bought, excuse me, sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulchre at the rising of the sun, and they said among themselves, Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulchre? And when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. And so Mark gives us a little uh, extra insight here as to actually what all is happening. And John tells us that Mary came early in the morning, but Mark says that there were other women that also came with her to the sepulcher. Mark also tells us why they came to the sepulcher. And the Bible says that they had bought spices and they came to anoint the body of Jesus. And the reason they wanted to do that, now the Word of God doesn't say this, but it's very clear when we read other passages of Scripture, the reason they did that was because they really loved the Lord. They loved Jesus Christ. 
And so the Sabbath is passed. It's the first day of the week before dawn. And here they come to the sepulcher with these spices and these ointments because they want to anoint the body of Jesus. It was custom of the Jews to anoint the body of a deceased loved one with perfumed oils. There were two reasons they did that. Number one, it was out of respect for the dead, certainly. But it was also to mask the odor of death. The thing was that Joseph of Arimathea... And Nicodemus had already done this. Go back to John. We read this last week. In John chapter 19, in verse 38, we'll remind you of some things that we covered last week here, but the Bible says in John 19, 38, And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. He came therefore and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about an hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place... Where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. There laid they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. And so we find that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, at at cost to themselves, brought these spices and these aloes, and they wrapped the body of Jesus in linen along with the spices, as the custom of the Jews was, to bury. Well, now it's three days later. He'd been in the grave for three days and three nights. It's Sunday morning, and Mary and these other ladies come to the tomb, and they brought their own fresh supply of spices, and they came to do this out of love. They wanted to do it right, because the first time it was in such a hurry, because it was the day of preparation. Everybody following the story, how it's going here? Now, they came to the tomb early because they were devoted to him. They wanted to minister him to him one more time. The problem is, is that they should have been believing that Jesus would already be alive. They should have been believing. In John chapter 20 and verse 11, the Bible tells us, But Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. She's expecting to find the body of the Lord there. She's bringing of these spices to anoint the body of Jesus, but in ultimate reality, none of that would have been necessary if she had been believing what the Lord had already said. But when she arrives, the Bible tells us that she finds the stone rolled away from the tomb, and the tomb is empty. And when she sees this, she immediately runs to find the disciples of Jesus, and she tells them that the body of the Lord is missing from the tomb. That's the discovery that he's missing. Now look at verses 3 through 8 of our text. So she comes and she tells the disciples in verse 3, Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. And he stooping down and looking in saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. 
Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulchre, and seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple who came first to the sepulchre, and he saw and believed. Now, when they hear the news that Jesus is not in the tomb, and the tomb is empty, the Bible says Peter and John ran to the tomb to see what had happened. And when they arrived, they both saw the linen clothes lying there, undisturbed, and the napkin that had been about his head or his face was lying folded in a place by itself. And the Bible tells us that after they had seen these things, they returned back to their home. Now, I'm going to get back to Peter and John in a little while. But I want to make a quick statement here about the linen clothes that they saw in order for us to get a, a, a little bit better picture and understand what is happening here. The Bible says in verse 5 that they saw the linen clothes lying. Look at it. And he stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher and seeth the linen clothes lie. Now, I was, just, I was thinking about that, and I was like, what does this word lying actually mean? Uh, like, what is the Greek definition of this word? And I, I looked it up, and I, I, I saw something that I had never really understood before or seen before. And it just thrilled my soul because it adds a little bit extra excitement and picture to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The word means outstretched or set. But, it, but a literal translation of that word or that phrase would be this, still in their folds. In other words, what it's saying is, and what it means is, the linen clothes looked exactly like they were still wrapped around the body of Jesus. Now think about this for a second. Because this is pretty exciting and pretty awesome here. Apparently, it seems the clothes still resembled the shape of the body of Jesus. Another truth to note here is that this scene is very orderly and undisturbed. And had the body of Jesus been stolen, and had the body of Jesus been taken by the disciples or others like they were trying to say, those linen clothes would not be there. Had Jesus not really died and he was just, you know, he suffocated or he was just passed out, like some people try to say, and he got himself up, you know, because he wasn't totally dead, those linen clothes would not look like the shape of the body of Jesus. When they stooped in to look and they saw the linen clothes, it's still in the shape of Jesus, but there's nothing inside. What does it do? It adds to the awesomeness of the fact that he rose from the grave, passed through those clothes. He wasn't stolen, he wa and he truly was dead. And if he wasn't, he wouldn't, those things would not look the way that they do. It's awesome, I'm just telling you. Then there's the matter of the napkin. It wouldn't have been folded, and it wouldn't have laid in a place all by itself had grave robbers come. And what I'm simply saying is this, everything speaks of calmness, and order that Jesus Christ was in full control of his resurrection. 
Just like he was in full control of his death, just like he was in full control of what happened to his body on the cross, just like he was in full control of the place that he was buried, Jesus was in full control of his resurrection. Amen. Amen. Next, I want you to notice Mary's devotion. We see the discovery, but I want you to notice her devotion. Verse 11, but Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. Now, the Bible tells us that Peter and John went away from the tomb. They went back to their home. But Mary stayed behind to weep and mourn the loss of the Lord. Why did she stay? Well, I think that she stayed, even though she was a little misguided. She, I think that she stayed because she loved Jesus. She was mourning the loss of this one that she had loved so much. Even though she should have been believing at this point, it's obvious that she truly loved the Lord with all of her heart. And the Bible tells us that Mary had been delivered from a life of deep and dreadful sin. In Mark chapter 16 and verse 9, the Bible says, Now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. What I'm saying is, Jesus impacted her life in such a a tremendous way that it caused her to have nothing but love and devotion for Jesus Christ. She loved Jesus for what he had done in her life. She was devoted to him. And may I say this to you this morning. The redeemed soul, the truly saved soul, is also going to love Jesus Christ with all of their hearts. And it'll show in a life of devotion to Him. There are all kinds of people who say, Oh, I'm saved. Oh, I love Jesus. But look at the evidence of their life. Does their life demonstrate and show, I have so much love for my Savior, for what He did for me. I want to serve Him. I want to love Him. I want to obey Him. Your words mean nothing. Words mean absolutely nothing. Real conversion and the power of salvation to change a life will show in a person's life. You live life for self and for what pleaseth me. Oh, I love Jesus, but there's no, there's no dedication and devotion to Him. I would highly question and wonder. I'm glad salvation's not up to me. The Lord knows. But I do know this, when God changes a person's life and there's genuine conversion, there is absolute love and devotion for him because I remember what I was and what he saved me from. Mary sets the right example of love and devotion for all who say they follow the Lord. The question that comes to my mind this morning is, do you love him as you ought today? But I also want you to notice her darkness. Because verse 11 also tells us, not only is she standing there weeping at the the sepulcher, but we also understand the reason why. Because she expects the Lord to be there, but He's not. And the other verses tell us that she sees these two angels, and they asked her, Why are you weeping? And she saith unto them, Because... They've taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. 
she's still expecting or thinking that he's been taken. And then in verse 14, and when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Here we see Mary's darkness. And what I mean by that is that Mary had her eyes focused on the physical evidence rather than the spiritual answer. And the evidence that she was looking at meant that Jesus was gone and he was taken away, not that Jesus was alive. All she saw was an empty tomb. And it never entered her mind to consider the greater truth that Jesus is alive. That's the reason the tomb is empty. But you know what? Many times we are the same way. As if Jesus were still dead and there's nothing he can do. And I know this is true because I live it sometimes. My faith is small and the problems are too big and I allow those problems to be bigger than the Lord and I allow it to rob me of my joy and the reality that He's alive. And He's powerful. Way bigger than my problems. We serve the very one who went to Calvary, who died for my sin, three days later rose from the grave, just like he said, he's alive forevermore. Thank the Lord. We sang the song this morning, I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living, whatever men may say. Why? Because I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives. Christ Jesus lives. He walks with me. He talks with me along life's narrow way. And so rejoice. Rejoice, O Christian. Lift up your voice and sing eternal hallelujah to Jesus the King. He lives. Praise the Lord. And with that in mind, let's remember this morning that we have no reason to hang our heads in brokenness and sadness. You know what? Sadness comes along in life. Sometimes we feel broken. Sometimes things are hard and overwhelming. But at the end of the day, He's alive. He's bigger than the problem. And one day, when this life is over, I'm going to see Him face to face. Rather than hanging our head in sadness, let's learn to rejoice again in our living Savior. And just let me ask you the question before we move on. Does your relationship with the Lord Jesus move you in your love and devotion to Him? If He is genuinely alive and living in your heart, there is going to be a manifestation of His presence and His joy in your life. There will be. The second thing I want you to notice is the messengers at the tomb. Verses 12 and 13. Verse 12 says, And seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, 
and I know not where they have laid him. Here's the messengers at the tomb. In verse 11, the second part of it, in verse 12, we see their presence. There were two angels, the Bible says, at the tomb. Two is the number of witness. These angels have been dispatched from God to bear witness to the truth that Jesus is alive from the dead. And their message was one of absolute hope and perfect assurance for the souls of men. The Bible tells us in Matthew 28 regarding these, And the angels said, uh, answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. The Bible tells us that they were the witness of the resurrection of Christ, that they gave a message of hope and assurance for these. The Bible also tells us that they were sitting. Here's their posture. They were sitting. A posture of absolute peace. If the body of Jesus had been missing, you can be assured that these angels would have been busy. But yet they sit as if to say, it's okay, all is well. Again, showing the absolute control of Jesus, these angels appear to be at perfect rest as if to say the work is over, the work is done, we can rest. In fact, you know what? Every time that you see angels pictured in the Bible, they're always busy. They're always shown carrying messages, dispatching the enemies of God or the armies of men and attending to the business of God. That's how you see angels. They're messengers, but here they're at rest. And what a lesson for the lost soul this morning. Because Jesus lives, you can rest in your soul, rest in your weariness, rest in your labors. God doesn't want you to try to come to Him and please Him in some way by your efforts to try to have a relationship with Him. That's not what God is wanting. He doesn't want you to try to be good and try to live the best life you can in order to get into heaven. He wants you to realize, number one, that you're hopeless without Him. Number two, that you need to repent of your sin. And number three, you need to trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what God wants, nothing more. You can't be good enough to earn your way into heaven. And the truth of the matter is, friend, you need to think about that because you're not going to live forever. This body that you have is going to die. Your soul is going to live on somewhere in either heaven or hell. Where are you going to be? It's like, well, I try to be good. And you know, when I get to heaven and I stand before the pearly gates and Peter stands there and he says, why should you get into heaven? You say, well, I tried to be the best person I could be. I made some mistakes here and there in life, but overall, I've been pretty good, and so I should be able to get in. It's not going to fly. That's not how it's going to be. The Bible tells us that we're all filthy. We're all sinners. We're all condemned. The moment we come into this world, we're born condemned already. 
And the Bible tells us that what we need is to recognize and realize our guilt and our sin before God. I break God's law. I fail. I sin. I deserve His judgment and wrath because the wages of sin is death. I'm hopeless without Him. I can't save myself. But Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sin. And God simply says, repentance toward Him and faith toward Jesus Christ. And that is how you have a relationship with God and your sins are washed away. God doesn't want you to labor. He wants you to have rest in your soul. And if you'll come to Him in repentance and faith, He'll save your soul. Rest from your self-righteousness. Rest from religious works and futile efforts to please God. What He wants is repentance and faith. Look at verse 13, because verse 13 gives us the purpose of these messengers, the purpose of these messengers. They say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. Notice that they ask her a question. Verse 13 here tells us these angels wanted to stir something up in the heart of Mary. And their question was designed to turn a light on inside of her head. And it's as if they're asking, should you really be weeping? They said, why weepest thou? Should you really be weeping? Doesn't this empty tomb mean something? Actually, shouldn't it be a call for rejoicing? But Mary, like so many of us, still was living by sight rather than walking by faith. You know, often... We fail to discover deep spiritual blessings because we ourselves just can't get past the circumstances. To look beneath the surface to see what the Lord is really wanting to reveal to us. That happens with trials in life. I can't get past the circumstance. And, and my life is all upside down. And I fail to see the deep spiritual blessing that God has in store what God is really trying to reveal to me because my faith is small. The angels said, should you really be weeping? But then I want you to notice this because verses 14 through 17 show us the Messiah at the tomb. The Bible says, And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? He's saying, who, who are you looking for among the dead? She's supposing him to be the gardener. Saith unto him, Sir, if thou have, hast borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabbani, which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not. For I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Here's the Messiah at the tomb. Notice, first of all, the confusion. In verse 14, the Bible tells us that in Mary's weeping, she realizes that she's not alone. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. 
So the Bible tells us here that she turns around to see a man standing near her, but she doesn't recognize that it's Jesus, and she continues on in her weeping. And isn't that just like us sometimes? We have the very promises of God. The promise that I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. And how often do we fail to see Him in our circumstances time and time again, and we continue on? He's a risen Savior. (laughs) He's always involved in the very things that involve you. Amen? But then notice this in verse 15. Here's the confrontation. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, she says, If you've taken him somewhere, tell me where he is so that I can take him away. Jesus now asks Mary two questions. And the questions are designed to expose her to truth. He says, Why weepest thou? Why do you weep when you could be rejoicing? And number two, who are you seeking? Why do you look for he that is alive among those that are dead? And then in verse 16, we find the call. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. When Mary doesn't respond to his question of who are you looking for and why are you weeping, the Lord simply calls her by name and tenderly says, Mary. I think this is awesome. Because this isn't the voice of the Creator calling to the creature. This isn't the voice of the Master calling to His servant. This is the voice of a shepherd tenderly calling to his struggling sheep. She's hurting. She doesn't understand. She's confused. And Jesus simply says, Mary. There are three great truths revealed here that need to be mentioned Number one, the call of the good shepherd is the call of ownership. In John chapter 10 and verse 3, it's the great passage regarding Jesus as the good shepherd. The Bible says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that entereth not at the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he that entereth by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. The call of the good shepherd is the proof of ownership. He calleth his own sheep by name. He calls Mary by her name. The second truth is his call is also instantly recognized by his sheep. Verse 4 of John 10 says, And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Now when you take it back to Mary's situation, Jesus simply says Mary, and instantly the Bible says that she recognized his voice, and she said, Master? Verse 16 notes the one word from the great shepherd and the weeper is transformed into the worshiper. She says, Master, at the sound of his lovely voice, her weeping stops. And I love the fact that Mary immediately calls him Master. 
She responds to his voice by affirming her love and devotion for Jesus Christ. And that ought to be the immediate response of you and me as well. Every child of God, when we hear his voice, when it comes our way, may the Lord help us to say, yes, Lord, I'm listening to you. Now look at verse 17. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father, but goeth to my brethren, and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Now Jesus says, Touch me not. That's the command. I imagine in my mind that Mary must have, when she recognized that this was Jesus and she loves the Lord, I imagine in my mind that she probably was probably coming to him with her arms wide open like she's going to give him the biggest hug ever because he's alive. But Jesus says, touch me not. And the question is why? And he said, because I am not yet ascended to my father. And I believe that what is happening here is that Jesus is about to step into the presence of his Father and offer his blood upon the mercy seat as the perfect and final payment for the sins of men. Go to Hebrews chapter 9 with me. Hebrews chapter 9. And look with me in verse 6. The Bible says, Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience." which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now skip down to verse 22. The Bible says, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these. That's the, the temporal 
sacrifices of the Old Testament, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament types and figures. And the reason I believe that Jesus told Mary, don't touch me because I haven't ascended to my Father yet, and what he's saying is, I haven't taken my blood that I have shed into the holiest of all and put it on the mercy seat, the final payment for the sins of men. Jesus, like I said, was the fulfillment of all these Old Testament sacrifices and holy days. This day, as he would ascend to his Father, Jesus would fulfill and become another offering before the Heavenly Father. And I was, as I, something, something else I had never understood or put together before. But we know that Jesus is the the fulfillment of all the Old Testament sacrifices, all the Old Testament holy days. They point to Jesus Christ who would fulfill these things. And there was something that the Jews would do before God, something called the wave offering or the feast of the first fruits. In Leviticus chapter 23, in verse 9, the Bible says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye become into the land which I give unto you, and shall reap the harvest thereof, then ye shall bring a sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest unto the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you. On the morrow, after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And ye shall offer that day when ye wave the sheaf, And he, lamb, without blemish of the first year for a burnt offering unto the Lord. There was something called the wave offering or the feast of firstfruits among the Jews. And on the first day of the week, immediately following the Passover, the priest would take some wheat uh, that was growing in their field and he would wave that before the Lord to symbolize that this was the firstfruits and there would be more to follow. And when Jesus ascended back to heaven and appeared in heaven before his Father, he stood there as the firstfruits, declaring that there would be more to follow. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 again. We were there already, but just, just quickly follow me with this. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 23. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, 23, But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. Skip to verse 51. Verse 51 says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trump shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the firstfruits. 
and there's more to follow. Amen? And because of that, all who believe in Jesus Christ are going to live because He lives. Praise the Lord. Mary at the tomb. The messengers at the tomb. The Messiah at the tomb. And the last thing that I want to point your attention to quickly is the message of the tomb. Would you go back to our text in John chapter 20? And I just want to direct your attention to verses 5 through 8. The message of the tomb. In verse 5, it's talking about Peter and John. They've run to the sepulcher because they've heard that the body of the Lord isn't there. And you get to verse 5, and the Bible says, And he's stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulcher, and seeth the linen clothes lie. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. The message of the tomb. These verses tell us about what Peter and John did when they arrived at the tomb. And it's interesting to dig into these words that are used here to just help us gain a little insight into the thoughts and, and the progression here. There are three thoughts that I want to just quickly draw your attention to. In verse 5, you notice the word saw. Look at verse 5 again. And he stooping down and looking in saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. That word saw, translated in English as saw, it's a Greek word that means to take a glance at something. It's a fleeting glance. It's a quick glance. It's sort of just, you know, you, 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 you glance across the room. You don't really pay much attention to detail, but you, you, you take it in. It refers to a brief, fleeting glimpse. That is what John did when he got to the tomb. He took a quick glance in the tomb and saw that Jesus was not there, but the grave clothes were still there. You got that? Follow that? Just a brief look. But then look at verse 6 and 7, and you're going to see the word seeth. Another, uh, another idea of, of the fact that it was taken in. Verse 6 says, Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulcher, and seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. The word seeth that you find there, this word means to scrutinize. And it carries the idea of looking around with a keen eye to catch all the facts. You see the difference between verse 5 and verse 6? John just takes a quick glance, doesn't actually go inside, but Peter goes inside and he starts to scrutinize. Looking with a keen eye to catch all the facts. It carries the meaning of a detective. And this is what Peter did. He saw the grave clothes and the napkin lying by itself. But then you get to verse 8, and you're going to find the word saw again. Verse 8 says, Then went in also that other disciple who came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. This is a different Greek word, still translated as the English word saw. But this word means to look 
with understanding. And it carries the idea of grabbing hold of what you see. When John took the time to take a closer look, he saw the evidence in the empty tomb and the evidence in the empty grave clothes, and he understood in his heart that Jesus is alive. And the result is, the Bible says, he believed. That's the message of the empty tomb. Look with your eyes, understand the evidence that Jesus is alive today, and let it cause you to believe in him as Lord and Savior. The Bible says in Romans 10 and verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness. And the conclusion, friend, is this. In the 6,000 years or so of recorded human history, the most important message that has ever been heard is this. He is not here, for he is risen. Do you know this risen Savior today? Do you believe? Are you trusting in Jesus alone for your soul's salvation? And as a Christian, it's obvious if you're here today, you claim to be saved, you know the Lord, it's obvious that you've come and you've seen and you've believed. The next question that I would ask you is, are you telling? Are you telling of this risen Savior? We didn't read this in John, but the other Gospels say that the angels told Mary, you go and tell, not just the disciples, but you go and make this known to other people. And the question is, are you telling others about this risen Savior? Jesus told Mary to go and tell all that she had seen, all that the Lord had spoken unto her. What difference does the resurrection of Jesus Christ make in your life, friend, on a daily basis as a born-again believer? So there's two applications. Number one, do you know Jesus Christ is your Savior? Do you believe? Number two, as a born-again believer... What difference does his resurrection make in your life on a daily basis? Praise the Lord, he's alive, but now let's go do something with it. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your blessing, for you to use your word, for your spirit to draw the souls of men today. Thank you for this truth. Thank you for Jesus Christ, for his shed blood. Thank you, Lord, for his resurrection. That we have this hope, this confident expectation of eternal life, that he'll come again as he said he would. Lord, we thank you that he's alive and well today, that he's our great high priest who ever liveth to make intercession for us. What a wonderful Savior. We ask that you'd use these things for your glory in Jesus' name.